Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, and we're going to look at just one verse this morning, one that may be well known to many of you, Proverbs uh, chapter 22, verse 6. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we just read this together, out of just respect and reverence for the Word of God. Solomon states the following, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we submit our hearts and our minds to your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would cause it to become a living word that would really minister to questions and concerns, struggles even conflicts that we carry in our life. As we talk about our relationships, Lord, talking about being parents and being children, uh, we're talking about the most fundamental relationships, and we all know that there's nothing that's more painful than broken relationships. So God, we pray that you would uh, help us to hear your word, hear your heart, and to embrace your truth in our lives in a way that would make a difference. Give us that grace, Lord, because we know in the end it is all of grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. As the youngest of 14 children born into to a country pastor in Devonshire, England, the 19th century poet philosopher Samuel Taylor Coleridge had some rather decided opinions on how one should go about raising children. The following account is, is told from his life story. It says, while a guest in Coleridge's home, a well-known intellectual informed Coleridge that he did not believe in giving children any religious instruction whatsoever. His theory was that a child's mind should not be prejudiced in any direction. Rather, he reasoned when the child became mature enough, he should be permitted to choose his own religious opinions for himself without being prejudiced by the views of his parents. At first, Coleridge said nothing in reply, but a little later, though he asked his guest if he would like to see his garden, his guest indicated that he would very much be interested and followed Coleridge to the back of his home. Once outside, Coleridge showed him a patch of ground that was completely overtaken by weeds. The man looked at Coleridge and exclaimed, why, this is not a garden, there's nothing here but weeds. Well, you see, answered Coleridge, I did not wish to infringe upon the liberty of the garden in any way. I was just giving the garden a chance to express itself and to choose its own production. Like the 18th century limerick, Mary, Mary, how does your garden grow? Uh, we kind of have to ask that same question of ourselves as parents many times. How is the garden in which our children are growing? How is it growing? Are they becoming fruitful and effective, or are they encumbered by the cares and the affairs, the deceitfulness of riches, the pressure of other things, as Paul warned, or Jesus warned in the parable of the sower? You see, it's a matter of just simple common sense that uh, both gardens and children need to be trained if they're going to be productive, at least to be productive in a positive way. 
For example, Deuteronomy 4.9 reads, Do not forget the things your eyes have seen. And then he goes on, Teach them to your children and to their children after them. So both as a parent and a grandparent, we're to be teaching the things that we have seen and learned about God. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, These commandments I give, impress them upon your children. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold correction from a child. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Again, Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. Uh, Ephesians 6, 4, we looked at last week where he said, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And then, of course, there's Hebrews 12, 8 through 11, where he says, if you do not, if you are not disciplined, and everyone, he says, undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? And then he adds, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, no, no kidding, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, the converse of that, Solomon said in Proverbs 29, 15, was he said that a child left to himself disgraces his mother. So we have this contrast and comparison that the Proverbs are so wont to give us between choices in behavior. You can be dedicated to training your children and that will influence them in a one direction or another, or you can not simply train them in a negative way, but just simply by not training them at all will have that negative effect. Because one of the things we understand that like gravity, behavior doesn't improve with neglect. That, we, that just as things drop from a place of height to lowness, if they're because of gravity, so also human behavior doesn't just on its own become better and better every day in every way. Jesus illustrated, I think, to some degree in the parable of the sower, where he said that the seed that the farmer was sowing in the ground was the word of God. And in reality, I think it comes down to as parents that we can either be growing weeds or seeds in our children's lives. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it that I am sowing into their hearts and into their minds? Are we planting good seed in good soil or as Jesus warned, are we allowing the devil to come, as he said in Luke 8, 11, and take away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved? You see, today, and I think most of us understand this, that too many kids, even Christian kids, are left largely to themselves. They're under-supervised, they're under-guided, in some ways they're even being under-guarded, the too many Christian parents are, are too busy and too distracted to take the time that is required to plant good seed and to, at the same time, root out the weeds that so easily begin to accrue inside their own children's soul. We talked about last week that you don't have to train a child to lie, cheat, and steal. They have that gene already in them. What you do is have to confront and modify and redirect. And I find that many parents are, are, are depending upon the schools or even Christian schools 
They're depending on the peers and the media that their kids are accessing, which has become really the primary place of informing and formulating their children's characters. So that one recent UK study said the average amount of time that a parent spends with their child on a daily basis is less than 19 minutes a day. So on one hand, I hear Christian parents decrying, saying, well, the schools have them five days a week and we only get them on Sunday morning. No, you have them every morning and every evening and every weekend. But what are you doing with the time that's allotted to you? The psalmist tells us that children, he said, are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And it's interesting when you think about archery that for an archer to be effective, there are really four things that he has to do. The first thing he has to do is he has to knock this arrow. In other words, he has to notch it onto the, to the, to the string. He has to knock it, which is kind of like he has to commit to doing this. And, and then he has to draw the bow, aim it, and then release it. And I think it's interesting to me that the word sin is actually also an archery term as it's used in the Bible. It literally means to when the archer is firing at the target and he misses the mark. He misfires, he misaims. And there, again, are a number of reasons. If you've ever done archery, you know there's a number of ways that you can get it wrong. First of all, if you never really commit to putting the arrow in the bow, you're not going to hit anything. Left to itself, the arrow will lay on the ground or in the quiver but secondly, it has to be drawn, which is a, an effort. You know, drawing a bow is not easy. It's a, it takes strength. And then you have to aim carefully for the target and make sure that you're pointing it in the right direction. And when the time is right, then you release it. And those steps have to be respected and have to be honored so that when we look at our kids and saying, well, I want my kid to really hit the target, to really kind of strike the bullseye of their life, we have to understand that there is a responsibility for us to be those who handle them in a way that they are knocked and they are uh, drawn and they are aimed and they are released because otherwise, no matter how much we may say we want them to succeed, they're not going to. And that's why parenting begins where he says here that we are to train a child. The word karak that's used here in Hebrew has really three basic meanings to train. One, obviously, to instruct. That as a parent, we need to instruct, we need to teach, we need to train children. We, we can't rely upon them to get it themselves. You know, we can't just hand them the Bible and say, you know, it would be in your, your uh, advantage to read this as you grow up. You know, we, we can't just put it like that. We have to teach them, and, and we also have to be engaged in correcting them, which if you have kids, you know, that's the most unfun part of being a parent. Correcting kids is not a fun, unless, of course, you're one who's telling me that you enjoy that part of it. Uh, we have enforcement officers who will be to meet you as soon as you leave. I mean, the point is that, that when the parent says, well, this hurts me worse than you, I agree with the young man who simply said, 
uh, to his dad, well, in that case, why don't we do uh, both of us a favor and not spank me? You know, it's like, it's, it's not a pleasant thing. Discipline and correction are not the things that we want to be doing with our time, our effort, and our energy. But to leave it unaddressed is to kind of determine that we're going to let the behavior become a settled fact. And unfortunately, as I said, so many parents spend so little time really actively, honestly engaged with their kids that much of what's going on in their life is unseen and unknown. It's surprising, and we'll talk more about this in a future teaching, but it's staggering, it's terrifying to realize what our children are viewing and how few of us are even aware of it and have any idea what's going on. But the word I find most interesting isn't the teaching, isn't the correcting. It's also a word that meant to dedicate. And that's the idea. When I talked about the metaphor of the arrow, that if unless you pick up the arrow and knock it into the string, uh, you're not committing to anything. And that's almost like saying when it comes to kids, you have to begin from the very moments of pregnancy, the beginning of the gestation, when, when, when the wife says, I I'm going to have a baby. At that moment, there needs to be an intellectual, at least, commitment to the fact that now I'm going to take on the responsibility to train this child. I'm dedicating myself to it. And I think this is really where we have gotten off course here, because many times people think that parenting is something that happens naturally, or it happens accidentally, or casually, or half-heartedly. I mean, it's almost like we just deliver the baby, we make sure that they're fed, and they have a place to sleep, and they're taken care of, and, and they'll just kind of grow up on their own. They'll find their own natural growth. And I come back and say, you need to think of them like weeds. They got to think of them like weeds. They will take on their own life. They will take on their own direction. I was thinking about, we have this beautiful grape arbor in the back of our church that was built years ago. And I remember last spring, I was watching a, a couple of gentlemen for the church were out there clipping and training and winding all these vines. And they were, you know, I thought they were killing it because of the way they were cutting stuff off. But they're doing all of this effort. And the consequence was when summer came, the, the grapes were just hanging down in such a full abundance that there's something about the training which also involves the correcting, stopping it from going one way, redirecting it in another, binding it at one point, loosening it on another point that has the way of causing the natural growth processes to produce something that is fruitful and sweet and delicious. And by the way, they are the most amazing grapes. Next year, you need to clean them up. Yeah. But you see, there are interesting meanings to this because the word dedicate literally means to commit to a task or a purpose. Its root is to be devoted towards something, to be invested in something. And the point I'm trying to, or the distinction I'm trying to make is that so often when it comes to raising our kids, we don't see them as an investment. Even within the church sometimes, we have a children's program because we don't want them in here. I had a pastor whose philosophy about children's ministry was keep them out of the sanctuary. And you know, the consequence is that you give a half-hearted effort, but the reality is, is there an idea that we are investing in the future? 
Now, this makes a lot of sense to me from my life perspective because I look back on 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, 46 years ago when I first became a Christian, 47 years ago, and I, look, I, I can look back on where people were at, where young people were at, and I look at where they're today, and I have to sit there and say, we have lost the handle. Somewhere in those years, we stopped instilling the values so that when I was growing up, there were a certain set of core values that we all agreed to. The Ten Commandments hung on the classroom wall. And I got a brand new silver dollar because I was the first one who could say John 3.16 faster than any other kid in the classroom. Didn't know what it meant, but I could whip it off just like that. Still got that silver dollar from Mrs. McIntyre. <laughs> and you simply say, well, you know, that's, a, that's really not religious training. And it's true, it wasn't. But the very fact that there was this list on this wall that says, I am the Lord your God, and you will have no other gods before me. Made me sit back and go, hmm, wonder what that means. Further down, the list became more clear. Thou shalt not steal. <laughs> Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not kill. And suddenly there's instilled in your mind as you're reading that, and as we're taught to memorize it, along with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all those other things, that there are certain concepts that become embodied in your thinking that begin to govern your behavior. When we look at this word to invest in, to be dedicated to, it, successful parenting has synonyms, words like commitment, application, diligence, Resolve, zeal, conscientiousness, perseverance, persistence, tenacity, drive, staying power, hard work, effort. That's what it means to train a child. Not just simply certain actions, but there is such a, a focus at what we're doing that we are putting our energy into it. The antonym or the opposite is apathy laziness and indifference. Apathy, which just simply says, why bother? It won't make any difference. Laziness saying, you know, I just need some me time. I've been at work all day. I'm tired and I just want some space. Go watch your TV shows. Go play on the computer. Or we just don't care. Ah, I turned out okay. You might want to ask somebody if that's true. I turned out okay, and they'll be okay. It's not, no big deal. You see, what God explained to Moses, what it means to, to be dedicated in training our kids. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you could turn there if you want, chapter 6, 1 through 9. If you're a parent in particular, this is a passage that you should read with haunting fear on a regular basis. But he says there to them, he says, these are the commands, he goes on, the laws, the statutes, and so forth, that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe. Not just teach you them, but to teach you to observe them. Now, that may seem like kind of redundancy, but it, it's important. It's important that we don't just teach our children data and information, but we teach them to observe it. That means to observe means to fix their eyes upon it and say, these are objectives that I should be striving to reach. And he goes on to say, so that your children may fear the Lord your God 
Enjoy long life and increase greatly just as the Lord has promised you. Now, what you have to understand, he starts off with this amazing promise. He's saying to the the parents, the the moms and dads in Israel, if you teach your children to observe these things that I have said, if you teach them to observe what I've written in my word, here will be the consequences. I promise, I promise this to you, that you'll find that their life will be not only defined by a reverence for God, but because they reverence God, they're going to have a long life. In other words, they're going to stay away from those things that lead to shortened lives. And there are many behaviors today that people engage in that are going to lead to a shortening of their life. One of the things we need to understand that sin is not simply God telling you, I don't like it, so you can't do it. God never looks at it and says, because I told you so. No, God says, don't do these things because he said, why should you perish? Why should you die before your time? That's the whole point of God's commandments. Not to restrict your freedom, but to save your life. Not to make your life less fulfilled, but to make it more fulfilled. God is trying to channel us in pathways where blessings will be found. And the more you believe that, the easier it is to listen to what God has to say. The less you believe it, the more you spend your life, as Paul did, kicking against the goads and resisting God's call. But he says, you want a long life? How about increase greatly? Your life will increase. And he doesn't necessarily mean that financially, but it's also included that you'll begin to see that your life will prosper in ways that you never imagined. And then finally, he says, you'll uh, increase and enjoy these things based upon my promise to you. It won't be you making it happen. It won't be the result of you working some program. It'll be the result of God just bestowing his blessing. And you know why I think that's important? Because it says when God blesses, he adds no sorrow to it. When we go out to kind of bless ourselves, we may succeed in getting more than we thought we could have, but in the end, we're looking at it and going, this has become more a curse to me than a blessing. But when I really live following the promise of God, making choices because God makes promises, then the consequence is that I have the joy of that experience and there isn't sorrow attached with it. Well, He then turns to the parents and say, okay, parents, here's the first step in dedicating your children, devoting yourself, investing in your children's lives. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. You know what your kids will find out about you really quick? What is most important to you? Regardless of what you say. I remember there was a a great television show back in the 70s called All in the Family. A few of you remember that. It was fun for me because watching Archie Bunker was like watching my dad on TV. (laughs) But I remember one particular show where they were arguing about the, the new moral trends or growing immorality in the culture. And Archie walks over to the TV set, and on top of it is this great big family Bible. And he puts his hand on it, and he says, well, this is what we believe in. 
And his daughter, his wife, Edith, said, Archie, the TV? And it was really kind of revealing because, I mean, essentially you can see what the writer's point was, what Norman Cousins was trying to say, that we, it's more about what we do. Even though there was a Bible right there, it never got opened. It was dusty and probably the pages stuck together because they'd been sealed for so long. But the TV was in fine working order. And that's the whole point, is that your children will automatically recognize what are the things that are most important to you without you ever saying a word. Because we follow the paths that we think are the most profitable for us to follow. So when I talked about last week, about how that growing up and, and my kids seeing me and my wife reading our Bibles and seeing us praying together and about things and over them, you begin to find it has a powerful impact. I thought it was really interesting when, when uh, my, my wife was talking to my granddaughter, who's going, oldest granddaughter, who's going through some very, very terrible things. And, and, and she said to my wife, every time I get frightened, I start singing the songs you taught me when I was a little girl. So here's a 21-year-old girl, girl singing, Jesus brought you to us, and we love you from the start. That's a little bit of sunshine from Jesus to our heart. She's going back to that thing that was this sense of covering and protection and blessing and grace in her life. But thirdly, he says, so that once you've sanctified and dedicated Christ in your own heart, then he says, then you can impress these things on your children. I love that word impress. It's, it's leaving your mark, your fingerprints all over them. You can't impress something from a distance. I remember my mother telling me after we'd visit sometimes, she says, I, I, I just sit there and look at the kids, my grandkids' fingerprints all over the sliding glass door. And she says, I, I won't wash the window. I just leave them there because I just look, I just love looking at all those little fingerprints. That imprint and I just ask you, you know, your parent, your kids are going to have your imprint. They're going to be your fingerprints all, all over them in ways big and small. And, and sometimes inadvertently. I remember when I was, when my son Ben was about five years old and he just was attracted to Cheetos. And uh, I just told him, I said, son, they're delicious. I grant you that. But if you eat Cheetos, you'll never have big muscles. His eyes got really big, never touched a never Cheeto. <laughs> and then one day, he's got his little boy who's probably, Hudson, who's probably was three or four at the time. And Hudson was grabbing some Cheetos. And he, I hear Ben saying, very seriously, Hudson, if you eat Cheetos, you'll never have big muscles. And I said, Ben, I just made that up. And the look of disappointment on his face. <laughs> what? <laughs> I impressed that on him. <laughs> to this day, I don't think he can enjoy a Cheeto. I just sit there and eat him. <laughs> you impress them one way or another. One way or another, you're impressing them. And that's why he begins by saying, start with your own self. Is your own heart sanctified to God? Is your own heart dedicated to God? Is the thing that is a prime mover in your life to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength? 
Because if it's not, you will impress upon them whatever it is that you love with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. And then he goes on to say, how does that work out practically? He says, talk about them. That is the commands of God. When you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Do you understand he's saying that Christ becomes part of your conversation. The Bible becomes part of your just your ordinary conversation. It isn't something that we do at religious moments. It's something that's part and parcel. I remember years ago when uh, Gail Irwin was up here speaking and he was staying at our home with us. And, um, and uh, we were sitting around having a formal dinner because we had a guest. And my wife had put all the, the good stuff out, you know, and we were using real butter, not margarine and all this. Really making a big impression, you know, putting on the dog. And uh, so we sit down and I say, well, let's pray and let's just hold hands and pray together. And one of my sons, one of my smart alecky sons, <laughs> pops off and said, why? We never do any other time. <laughs> Gail just bent over and laughed her. He even put it in one of his books for which I will never forgive him. But I'm just saying, you know, it's, uh, yeah, teenagers like to embarrass their parents, as we talked about last week. But the point is, they live in the reality of what you do, not what you say. And you're impressing that upon them. Somebody once wrote a book called Kids Are Wet Cement. And I mean, there's such a truism to that, isn't it? That we leave our marks on their lives and those things become hardened and settled over time. I know, I know I'm terrifying many of you right now. But he says, you know, it just simply, whatever you talk about, whatever becomes the things that is the source of conversation in your life, that's the stuff that their ears hear, their hearts absorb. He goes on and says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. What are the symbols that you have in your life. We all have them. They're symbolic things. They're, there's things that we honor. There's things that we profile. There's things that we emphasize. What are those symbols in your home? I just leave that out there for you to work through. And he says, and write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. The, you know, the, the problem with the, the Jews uh, during the time of Jesus had taken this so literally and so legalistically that they began to do that. They would wrap the things around their arms, the phylacteries, and they'd wear the boxes on their foreheads with passages, with this passage and other passages of scriptures inside of them, and their doors would have the mezuzahs, so you'd go by and they'd touch it. Even today in hotels in Israel, they're hanging there so you can touch them as if you're praying to them. All these symbols and all these reminders, Jesus said, the problem is you've They've become traditions that, that you uh, carry out. They're not things that are coming out of your heart. And that's often the problem that happens, that things become certain practices, certain traditions. They aren't things that are incorporated into our lives. But I find such an amazing difference when you talk about the Word of God as if it really matters. When you begin to see it as an operative and functional part of your day-to-day -day life, when you ask the questions, what does the Bible say regarding that? And that creates a trajectory to your life that these kids absorb without you even trying. In a way, I, almost, I was thinking this morning about what kind of graffiti is on the wall of your heart. 
What kind of doodles are there on the, on the notepad of your mind? Because those things express what really has the prefrontal hold on you. But secondly, there's a kind of training, and it's, this is kind of a duh kind of statement, that we need to train them in the way, and originally the word for way means a, a course or a path of life. In other words, we need to train them in the pathways that we want them to go down. And, and, and the obvious answer is John 4, 14, 6, right? I am, Jesus said, the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That I, I emphasize that as being obvious, and yet it's amazing how no longer obvious it is in our day and age. Because we find that a whole generation of young people coming out of our churches, going into our universities and colleges, are saying, well, I think that there's other ways. And I don't believe there is a, such a thing as absolute truth. And really, you know, life is what you decide it is. And there's certainly got to be other ways to get to heaven than just this one. And when I see that, I realize that what's happened is it's not like the parents denied that fact. They just never emphasized it. And they didn't emphasize it earnestly enough and long enough so that as children began to hit that pubescent period where the only question they ask is why, that they never asked why about that. They never sit there and say to their parents, why do you say that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life? And as a result, those necessary conversations don't happen so that when they go off to college and they're confronted by an oppositional view, they have nothing to say. And as a consequence, 80% of our kids going off to college end up losing their faith. The most deadly thing you could do for a Christian kid today is send them off to college unequipped to defend their own faith. And yet that's increasingly the case. Now, we, we talk about biblical illiteracy in our culture. I mean, that's all social scientists who have studied this. That's their term, that we are, America is a biblically illiterate culture. And it, it's staggering because we have more resources and accesses to Bible and other study helps than any people have ever had in the history of the world. We just don't read them. We have massive libraries that basically are great for helping to feed bookworms, but not people. And as a consequence, what we find is that only 8 to 9% of people who profess to be Bible-believing Christians can even score correctly on a list of eight basic doctrines that define the Christian life. So you get this kind of contradiction in a lot of these surveys. It says, do you believe the Bible is God's word? Absolutely. What do you believe about that? Well, I don't believe that one. Well, what about this one? I don't believe that one either. What about this one? <laughs> and you start going, wait a minute, well, what does that mean? And you find people sit back and go, I, I don't know what it means. I, I just, you know, I, I believe it's God's word in as much as it doesn't interfere with what I'm doing. But many suggest that there's also a secondary meaning to this idea of training in the way. And I, I do, at least in part, agree with them because I think also it needs to be a sensitivity to each child's unique way or their bent, as someone termed it. See, in the same way that every tree has a unique growth ring, so every child has his or own unique growth rings or bents. 
It's their personality, their gifting, their capabilities. And effective parenting requires that you know each of your child's bents, their, their unique qualities. I thought it was interesting as we were talking before service, and Luke made this observation. He says, all of the Ortiz kids have vastly different personalities. It's their mother's fault, because <laughs> I'm such a stable guy, you know. But but they do. I mean, they have really different personalities. We can get into deep studies on birth orders and family constellations and how those things take place and how one kid affects another kid's and blah, blah, blah. But the reality, each of them is different in their response patterns so that you've got some kids that you could literally beat them to death and they would never yield. They're so strong-willed. And on the other hand, you have those kids, you just give them a look and they comply. And it goes further than that. But the simple fact is that knowing how to communicate with each child is an important part of parenting. But here's really where I want to go because we don't have time to go deep enough into this. That one size does not fit all in the same way that all shoes don't fit the same foot. How convenient would it be, moms, if you could just simply go to the store and buy the same size shoe for all of your kids and bring them home. But you can't do that because you'd be going back and forth returning shoes all the time. They have to be fitted for the shoe that goes on their foot. And some are thin and some are wide, some are deep and some are long. I mean, every kid has a different foot and the shoe needs to conform to that foot, right? We understand this. But how do you know that? How do you find that out? You see, as a grandparent, we've discovered the problem of not being around our grandkids, ones who are in different parts of the country. And so when it goes to buying them clothing, we have to be really careful because I don't know how big their foot is now or how tall they are or what size they wear. As I look it on the rack and my wife looks on the rack and goes, I think that would fit. But that's the whole point is that you have to have that kind of intimate contact to recognize the uniqueness of every single child. That's why when some people say, well, I don't give my kids a lot of quantity of time. I just give them quality time. Think this through with me for a moment. Is that the man you want to do your surgery? Well, how many times have you done this surgery? Well, I watched a video and I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, right? <laughs> right away, you know, I'm, I'm off the table and out the door. I, having had surgeries, I'll tell you what my process was. Talking to everybody I know and finding out who's the guy who has done this more than anybody else with the highest rate of success. I want the best. I want somebody who knows has had a quantity of time because then they can develop the quality of procedure. And you can't have a quality relationship with your kids if you don't give a quantity of your time. If you're giving them 19 minutes a day or less, you're probably not going to know your kids and their issues well enough, and they're not going to know you and how to talk to you about those things well enough to actually have the kind of life-transforming conversations. You see, it's part, in part the failure to do that is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 6 and again in Colossians 3 when he said, parents, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't exasperate them. 
Because one of the things that you'll find that kids will often complain is, my mom, my dad never listens to me. They're kind of like so busy trying to get stuff done and get from point A to point B and manage this problem and deal with this situation that they don't have time to really sit down and, and say, let me talk to you long enough so I can start hearing your heart. Because when they let you, when they get to hear your heart, then you can begin to impress your truths upon them. To be able to say, this is why I've trusted Jesus. Yeah, I went through that same series of questions. I had those same doubts. I struggled with that. But let me tell you what I found, what I discovered. And it's a transformation of that relationship. Because I guarantee you that kids will gravitate to whoever will listen to them, even if it's a ne'er-do-well knucklehead who has no idea what he or she is talking about. But if they will listen to them, they will follow them. Because today it's more about belonging than it is about believing. And so we see it in our culture as the families become busier and more separated and disengaged. The kids are on the search, on the hunt for someone who will parent them, even if it's one of their own peers who has no idea what they're doing. The blind, as Jesus said, will lead the blind and they'll both fall into a ditch, a ditch of gang, a ditch of addiction, a ditch of, a ditch of broken relationships. They'll, they'll all fall in that same ditch because they're following the people who are willing to listen to them. But it is the last part of this passage that's caused the most confusion for those who have heard it and read it and studied it. Because it says, if you train the child in the way he or she should go, when he is old or she is old, he will not turn from it. And I say it's a question because many Christian parents have seen their children whom they did raise in the faith and they did do all of the things that I've talked about. They've seen those kids grow up and turn away from the faith and they basically say, as someone once explained, well, it's not a promise, it's just a probability. I remember I heard that from a very esteemed uh, gentleman in the Christian community. He said it on national radio, international radio. It was not a promise. It's just a probability. And I thought, what well, well, you mean it's like God says, you know, in eight out, of, eight out of nine cases, eight out of ten cases, if you do all the right things, your kid will turn out. That other, you know, those other 20%, I, I don't know what, they just, just, I don't know what that's due to. It makes no sense, really. God doesn't say something and say, this is probably true. Because God doesn't live in the realm of probability. He is absolutely certain. He says, I am God. <laughs> I'm not, he doesn't say, I am probably God. I promise to give you eternal life. He doesn't say, I probably will let you in. I mean, you know, the whole terminology doesn't work when we talk about God. And when God says, they will not turn from it when they're old, I take that as a promise. Not just a possibility or something to hope in. But where do we get this wrong? Well, it's because what we see it is, as an expectation and not something that we're called to anticipate. What's the difference? Well, it's my difference. It may be kind of arbitrary, but I make this distinction. You see, I anticipate the second coming of Jesus Christ, but I do not know when to expect it. I remember when I first got saved, I was talking with this older Christian. He'd been saved a lot longer than I had, about six months. 
And he was telling me about the Bible and everything, and prophecy, introduced me to Bible prophecy. And, and he said, the way I see it right now, the world that we live in can't last more than another two years. Two years, we're out of here. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, whoa, man, I better get my show on the road and get my act together and all those kind of other metaphors he threw out there. And, you know, year one came, year two came. I remember even my pastor standing up on New Year's Eve, 1980, and say, based upon this and based upon that, uh, I believe that Christ is coming within the next year. And I remember saying the thing to myself, you probably are going to regret you said that. And sure enough, he did. But the whole point is that we can, when we have expectations, we're going to say, this is how it's going to happen. I'm going to have kids in a Christian relationship and I'm going to take them to Sunday school and I'm going to take them to Christian school and I'm going to take them or I'm going to homeschool and they're going to go to Awanas and they're going to go to this thing and that thing and, we're, and, 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 and therefore I have a promise from God that they will not turn from the faith and then those kids grow up, go off to college and do stuff that you never even thought of and you're going, what went wrong? God didn't keep his word. No, it's a problem. You had an expectation. See, I anticipate that Christ will return any time or not in my lifetime. <laughs> I know he's coming back. I, I, I have total expectations. So when I talk about training a child in the way he or she should go, I anticipate that one day there's going to come a moment in that child's life sooner or later where they're going to have an encounter with God and it's going to change everything. Because unless you have a crisis of conversion, you probably haven't had a conversion. Unless you've come to that place of the prodigal son who simply says, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my family and I'm going to humble myself and return to my father. You know, it's, it's only when you're, you're waist deep in pig feces and realize that you're eating the food that they don't want to eat, you come to that moment saying, what have I done to myself? That is a crisis in your life. And until you come to that, you may know all about him. As, as my son used to always say, you've been Christianized, but you probably haven't been converted. You may even be convinced that everything is true, but you've never surrendered yourself, invested and dedicated yourself because it's still all in the realm of theoretical. It can become Christian, being a Christian can become its own lifestyle. We don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't run with girls who do. Ah, you must be a Christian. No. I am reminded that um, in the parable of the sower, he talks about four kinds of seeds. And the first two, I believe, are, are people who don't get saved. One falls on the ground, the devil snatches it up, and it never has root. The other one sprouts up, but it too never has root. And it appears in the parable that it's the rooting, the germination of the seed of truth and its root system that designates somebody as truly saved. But then he has two others who are both in good soil and both grow root systems, but one is fruitful and one is unfruitful. And what is the difference between the two? Well, he says the, the seed that fell in the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. 
contrast, he says, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and persevering produce a crop. Persevering produce a crop. So when you want to distinguish the two, what is the difference between the two? There are some who persevere in the things that they have learned. There are some who do not. But you see, I believe that this has application even to our own children. That they can have the good seed of God planted in their life, but there are other things that begin to crop up and begin to choke off and limit the ability of them to be really productive. And the list of possibilities are innumerable. But does that mean that they will always remain choked by the weeds? No, there's a, I think there's a moment where they come like the prodigal son and realizing I am in deep weeds and my life isn't what God intended it to be. Because those who fell among the thorns are like the prodigal son who the prodigal son, remember, had a great and a gracious and a good father. Nevertheless, this younger son fell into bitterness and resentment and anger. And it says in the text that he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth on wild living. And there are going to be children who are raised with all the benefits that, that you could ask for, and yet they're going to still allow some root of bitterness to begin to sink into their hearts, and they're going to go off to a far country, a place far away from their father in heaven. And they're going to waste their lives pursuing something that's not true. But I also believe that as it goes on to say that one day he came to his senses. And he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and went to his father. That's what I believe the promise is, that one day that moment will come in that child's life. And he or she will stand up and just go, you know what? I've played the part of a fool. I've made the wrong choices. I've wasted my life on things that aren't life. I think it's so interesting because when the younger brother comes home in the story in Luke 15, his older brother, who I personally believe was the cause of the anger and resentment that he displays, the older brother basically gets angry because he's come back. And he's, the father says something to the older brother. He said, son, all that I have is yours. In other words, the younger brother took everything and he squandered it all away. Now he's coming back. His dad says, okay, let's redivide the inheritance and you get your share. The dad's saying, I'm sorry, son, you spent your portion. It's gone. Your older brother does possess everything. But then his father said, but there's more, things that are more important than stuff. Your brother who was lost has now been found. He was dead and now he's alive. And so I'm not saying that if our kids go off in tangents and go through experiences that they won't suffer. In fact, the suffering is part of the disciplining that God uses in their life. But I want to encourage you, Christian parents, don't view your wandering kids as if they're unsaved and they don't know Jesus. That I, 
I pray for my grandkids when they struggle with stuff. I pray that they have an encounter with Jesus unlike anything they ever met. That God would use this crisis in their life to bring them to the foot of the cross where they make Jesus their own. That he's not just the God of their fathers. Like Jacob said when God appeared to him at Bethel and he says, if you keep all these promises to me, God, then I will worship you as my fathers worshiped you. And one day as he came back and God mighty delivered him, he said, I will worship you. You are now no longer the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are my God, my God. And that has to happen in our kids' lives. My wife and I approached parenting from the perspective that we never assumed that any of our kids knew Jesus, regardless of baptisms or professions and confessions and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we hoped it was real and it took, but we knew that the real evidence of whether or not they knew Jesus was going to be the living out of their lives. <laughs> What is going to be the trajectory of their lives? What are going to be the choices? And the choices are not always going to be healthy. They're not going to be right. They're not always good. But you know that in the end, they come back to the place where they know the truth is to be found. So sometimes it takes them a while to write their testimony. And it's painful watching it. But when they write it, it's not written just in ink, but it's written in the blood of the Christ. It's the, his testimony in their life of what he did for them, how he saved them and redeemed them. So do I believe it's a promise? Absolutely. I stand on it as a promise. Yeah. They're going through their stuff. They're making their choices. They're making wrong decisions. But as someone once said about decision-making, it was a young man asked a successful businessman, he says, what's the secret of your success? And the older businessman said, making good decisions. He goes, great. How do you do that? by making a lot of bad decisions. <laughs> you know, when you take a test and you get 100%, it's not a good test because it doesn't measure what you don't know. And I found in my life that God is always measuring what I don't know so that I can look at it and go, oh, <laughs> more to learn. So they're going to stumble and they're going to struggle and they're going to make bad choices and some of those choices are going to break your heart. And the tendency of parents is to get all verklempt and fall apart and be overreact. And how can you do this to us? You said you're a Christian. We're a Christian family. And you say all the wrong stuff. And the, when the best thing you can say is, you know, I'm praying for you. Because, see, God ultimately will bring his own discipline in the life of the man or woman who turns their back on God. You will reap what you sow. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a law of the universe. You can't change that. They will reap. And it's painful to watch them go through injurious things. But you have to understand that this is the perfection of God's redemptive power. That God's economy is perfect. There is no waste. He recycles. My worst decisions, he has recycled for my good. So that sometimes I wonder, was I supposed to make that bad decision? No, I guess not. But, but God, my, that's why my favorite word for God is redeemer. He redeems the years that the locusts have devoured. He redeems that which is ashes, Isaiah said. He redeems that which is broken. He redeems that which is crooked, and he makes it straight. He's our redeemer. And God has made us a promise that if we will invest ourselves in 
training them in the ways of the Lord, dedicating our lives to following Him. And that's the key. You dedicating your life to be a follower of Jesus will make all the difference in the world. Now, if you're not willing to do that, I don't have to tell you. I remember the had some parents come to me many years ago and they want to talk about their kids. I said, well, what's up? Well, our daughter's living with her boyfriend and, and, um, and uh, our son has just come out of the closet and said he's gay. I said, wow, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, he said, and then the wife said something. She said, well, you know, we're Christians, but we're not those kind of Christians that feel like you have to go to church all the time. So, you know, I asked the very caring question, so how's that working for you? You see, we talk about, don't put that legalism on me. I'm just saying, where you show up tells what's important to you. Where you show up says what you're important to. Why do I, why should I make my kids go to church if they don't want to go to church? Because you're going to church and you can't leave them home alone. You don't need any more explanation than that. Legally, you're not old enough to stay home, therefore you have to come with me. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> but you see, there's more to it than that, isn't it? That they grow up and they see us, a family that worships together and prays together, is a family that ultimately will stay together. So that I found with all my kids, with all my grandkids, when they go through difficult times, you know what they do? They call up and say, would you pray for us? Because they know where the answers lie. And the day comes in their life where they suddenly say, you know what? God is there. God is real. I'm going to turn to him. Well, I'll give it a break. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us all. I get it that this is a topic that cannot help but produce all sorts of guilt feelings in every one of us, myself included. <laughs> oh, Lord, how many times I could live in the land of regret, looking back and saying, if I had been more, if I had, my heart had been more for you, if I'd been more in love with Jesus than I was with my own ministry. Lord, what a difference that would have made in, in their lives. God, we're, but I just thank the Lord that you turn ashes into things of beauty. And you restore what the locust had devoured. And you call things that are not as if they are. And you do a new thing. And that you take broken things and you mend them. And you take bent and twisted things and you make them straight. You take the land, the cities that have been destroyed, and you build them again. You take people who have been carried into captivity and you bring them back to the land because you are a God who loves to bless your children, that yearns for your children to be prosperous and greatly increased in every area of their life. But God, we have to get under the spout where the glory comes out. And that's hard for some of us to learn. We have to go through a lot of pain and disappointment before we finally come back to that place and say, Lord, it's only when I'm close to you. It's only when my, I'm seeking your face that my life is what it's supposed to be, what you called it to be. Lord, I pray that you'd help me. I pray that you'd help my children to come back to that place. Take them through whatever they need to go through in order to come to the end of themselves. Let them stand hip deep in pig feces and eaten 
food that even the pigs don't want to eat. If that's what it takes, Lord, bring in that point where finally they simply say, I have sinned against heaven. That's where it all went wrong. It wasn't my older brother. It wasn't my parental failure. I sinned against God. And that's when my life went badly. And there is repentance, Lord. And there is when healing begins to cascade from the throne of God. To begin to wash away our filth. Restore us and nourish us. And then we can go home to our Father and have Him put the robe on us and the ring on our finger and the sandals on our feet and have Him declare to everyone, this son of mine who was lost has been found and who was dead has been now made alive. We ask, Father, for that moving of Your Spirit in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As we continue on for a few more minutes, uh, we invite you to just... Uh, Repose for a moment in your own heart. Just step back and, and reflect on the things that we've talked about and how God maybe is ministering to you. Give him a chance to speak further. I think many times the real teaching time comes after I shut up, where God really begins to personalize what he's saying to you and to your situation and begins to help you sort through the issues. I, I really encourage you to, to just take a few more moments and not to rush for the doors. Sing if you want. Pray if you, you'd like. There'll be those of us who are up in front would be glad to pray with you. Partake of the elements of communion if your heart is in a place where you feel like you can do that with a clear conscience, with a surrendered heart, really. But I urge you to hear these things and let them ruminate on the inside of you so that they can become more than a moment but they can begin to become part of the fabric woven into your soul.